Welcome to So Says Rick. Mostly True Stories by Rick Hall. Welcome back. Oh, we are not going to talk too much because we want to get right to part two of the story we started last episode. So if you haven't listened to Oh Holy Night part one, go back and listen to it now. Otherwise, this will not make any sense. We'll wait for you. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, boy. Actually, let's not wait. They okay. can do it on their own. <laughs> so to refresh your memory, we're at the point in the story where Reverend Bond has to make a decision about how to handle things. So here it is, O Holy Night, Part 2. On the way back into town, I considered the different ways to handle this situation, and I concluded that I had to confront him once we got to the church. But when we pulled into the parking lot, Dennis smiled and said, Hey, thanks for going with me. That was kind of fun. I couldn't do it. I didn't see the hoodlum. All I could see was the little boy. It can wait, I thought. After that day, Dennis started making regular trips to the Crone Farm. In no time, Jeremiah recognized the sound of the beater Ford coming up the lane and would run out to greet him. Dottie trusted Jeremiah's instincts and slowly let down her guard. The three of them got along so well, she started looking forward to Dennis's visits about as much as the calf, and Jeremiah soaked up the attention from the two of them. He had a pretty good life for a foster calf. The only part left to cast in the living nativity scene was the lead role of baby Jesus. After much discussion, Olivia decided to use a doll. With all the other complications, live animals inside the church and freezing cold temperatures outside, it was probably a safer bet anyway. Bob Grizzle managed to get a flashlight inside the doll so it glowed through its swaddling clothes. They just couldn't leave him on too long or the baby Jesus would start to smolder. On December 10th, Bob Grizzle and the FFA boys started construction of the stable on the front lawn of the church. But before they built the actual stable, they erected a canvas tent over the site. They claimed it was to keep out the cold winds, but when the pounding and sawing ended, the tent stayed up. The morning of the first performance, I was surprised to see an FFA boy at each corner of the tent like guards at Fort Knox. I knew Olivia didn't want anybody to see the stable ahead of time, but I didn't realize how serious she was. That Friday afternoon, with the weather in the 40s and sunny, people set out lawn chairs to stake their claim for the big show. And by 5 o'clock, the crowd was so big it was spilling out onto Pine Street. Promptly at 5.30, about a dozen FFA boys marched up, surrounded the tent, and with a nod from Olivia, sprang into action. In seconds, the stable was revealed. The crowd let out a collective gasp. There was nothing special about it. Olivia had just done such a great job of setting it up, it seemed amazing to the onlookers. Now, I myself had seen some of the rehearsals, but like the audience, I had no idea what to expect. A hush came over the crowd as Mary and Joseph appeared from the side of the church with Tom Gibson as the innkeeper. Now, folks were surprised to see Tom playing any role, 
because he runs Gibson's Funeral Home and doesn't like to be in the public eye. Plus, Tom just doesn't talk much, and when he does, he speaks with a quiet, soothing voice and usually says things like, Your father is in a better place. Or, I think your mother would prefer the deluxe casket with a velvet-lined interior. But Olivia had told Tom that since his line was the first line of the production, it set the tone for the whole evening. Tom took it very seriously. You can sleep here! The crowd spontaneously applauded. Joseph put Mary on a Shetland pony and they walked to the stable. Mary was played by Alexis Edwards, who was actually pregnant, so it seemed very real. When Mary started to go into labor, she went into the cattle stall hidden from the crowd. Well, Tom's performance must have inspired her because she really got into character and relived the difficult birth of her first child, Duncan. Oh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made, but Mary screamed her head off. It was the most dramatic theatrical moment most people had ever experienced. When Mary emerged with a glowing Christ child, you could hear a pin drop. The little drummer boy got caught up in the intensity, too. Dennis abandoned what he'd rehearsed and launched into the solo from Wipeout. At the end, the crowd, with the exception of Horace and Dottie, applauded wildly. The shepherds entered on cue with a couple dozen sheep being herded by Don Craven's border collies. At one point, one of the sheep panicked and ran into the crowd. The lead dog, Tuffy, was having none of that. He ran the lost sheep through the rows of lawn chairs and back into the herd, just as they filed into the pen. When Tuffy closed the gate and latched it with his nose, the crowd was on their feet. Don was so proud of his dogs, I think he was glowing brighter than the Christ child. We narrowly averted tragedy when the wise men entered. Since Olivia couldn't find any camels, she decided they would ride three of Brent Meyer's horses. Brent raises Arabians, and she concluded that since the wise men came from the east, and Saudi Arabia is somewhere east of Illinois, it was historically possible that the wise men could show up on Arabian horses. But Olivia decided, instead of old men slowly entering to see the Christ child, she would have them gallop in, leap off, and present their gifts like John Wayne or Errol Flynn. It had gone well in rehearsal, but that was without an audience. That night, when the wise men came around the corner in a full gallop, there was a wall of people, and the horses had to stop on a dime, launching their riders into the air. The first two wise men were Buck and Chuck Reeves. They had ridden in the rodeo when they were younger, so they made it look simple. They landed on their feet at the edge of the crowd with their gifts of gold and frankincense. The third wise man was Howard Stillwell. Now, he normally rode show horses, so he did not execute his dismount quite as gracefully. Howard flew over the horse's head, breaking open his box of myrrh in the process. He looked like a crop duster, spreading a trail of baking powder as he flew through the air. He hit the ground, rolled several times, and when the dust cleared, he was standing next to the two other wise men. And there they were, John Wayne, Errol Flynn, and Chico Marx. The crowd cheered. After everyone had arrived at the stable, the plan was that the actors would sit in place as a tableau while Christmas carols played. Then Mary would carry the baby Jesus out of the stable and into the front doors of the church, with the rest of the actors following her. 
Olivia felt like it would be a subtle message that if you want to meet Jesus, you have to come into the Baptist church. As the actors took their places, Silent Night started up from the cattle stall next to Jesus' manger. We couldn't see the musicians until the shepherds got up and rolled open the door that obscured them, and there, for all to see, were Dusty Range and the farmhand pickers. Olivia had managed to get Dusty to sing for the Baptist church without getting anyone's permission. At least it was on the front lawn of the church and not in the actual sanctuary. I looked out at the audience in time to see Horace and Dottie pack up and leave. Luckily, not everyone in the crowd was from First Baptist, so they didn't know the politics of what they had just witnessed. At the end of the song, the crowd applauded and sat back to enjoy more Christmas carols. The next morning, Saturday morning, at 6.30 a.m., I got a wake-up call from Horace Crone. That living nativity scene is a three-ring circus. You need to shut it down. Luckily, I was able to convince him that we should have a deacon's meeting right after church the next day and discuss the possibilities. When Sunday morning arrived, I could hardly focus on the service because I was just dreading the deacon's meeting. Now, every week during the service, we take a minute to welcome visitors. And I say a minute, but it doesn't take that long because usually there are no visitors. But this Sunday, I noticed several new faces in the congregation. And when it came time to greet the visitors, twelve people stood up. When I asked, What brought you to First Baptist this morning? Two were visiting from Indiana, and the other ten were there because of the living nativity scene. In a small town, visitors to your church are a precious commodity. Suddenly, I couldn't wait for the deacon's meeting. Rather than dodging bullets, I would be going in armed with the most powerful tool of evangelism in the Baptist Church's arsenal. With only one no vote, Horace was in the minority, and the living nativity scene went on as planned, with sizable crowds every night right up to the Christmas Eve service. I have to say I was a little concerned about that service. If things went wrong, Horace Crome would be able to say, I told you so, with no statute of limitations. And on top of that, Clara was coming down with the flu, and she was playing the piano for the evening. I needed her to be the glue to hold things together. Finally, it was time in the service for the living nativity scene to enter the sanctuary. The lights dimmed, and from the narthex, a lone guitar player entered and started walking down the center aisle playing Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Of course, yes, you know it, it was dusty. Olivia had managed to get her playing music inside the church, too. Oh, there was no stopping it at this point. Dusty was followed by Joseph and Mary, carrying the glowing Christ child. Behind them were the two shepherds and Tuffy, the border collie. Next came Dennis Tuttle, with Jeremiah at his side, and finally the three wise men, one of them with a noticeable limp. He'd sprained his ankle from flying off the horse the very first night. I glanced over at the piano to check on Clara, and even from that distance I could tell she was fading. Oh, we're almost done. Hang in there, honey. Finally, the living nativity scene assembled in the tableau on the altar, and I have to say, it was a powerful moment. The focus turned to the choir loft for the old holy night duet. Dottie and Wanda stood and looked to the piano for the intro. Clara was gone. No one moved for an uncomfortable amount of time. 
I knew if Clara wasn't there, she was probably testing the plumbing I had fixed earlier. I was just about to stand up and explain my wife's absence when Dusty walked into the choir loft, whispered something to Wanda and Dottie, turned to face the congregation, and started strumming the intro to O Holy Night. Dottie and Wanda were dumbfounded. Neither of them had sung with a guitar before, so they weren't sure when to come in. Dusty had to repeat the intro three times. Then she paused, nodded to the ladies, and they began to sing. They were shaky at first. Dusty was in a lower key than they normally sang it, but they slowly relaxed and found a richness to their voices that was never there when they sang it in the higher key. All eyes were on Wanda, Dottie, and Dusty, so no one noticed Jeremiah getting restless. He heard Dottie's voice, and he knew she was calling to him. To Jeremiah, the words, O night divine, sounded like, Jeremiah, it's time. When the ladies got to what would normally be the painfully high part, their voices crescendoed into a beautiful harmony. Jeremiah couldn't stand it. He broke loose from Dennis and ran up into the choir loft. Without missing a beat, Dottie put a calming hand on Jeremiah's back, and he stood at her side for the rest of the song. There was not a dry eye in the church. I pronounced the benediction and immediately went looking for Clara. I found her lying down on the couch in my office. Wanda gave her a ride home so I could go back to the sanctuary to close up the church for the evening. There were only a handful of people left. In the back of the church, Horace Crone and Olivia Range were in a conversation that seemed very civilized. As Olivia walked out, she called over her shoulder, Reverend, I've got some ideas for next year. Lord, help me. I walked down to the front pew where Dennis Tuttle was sitting alone. Are you all right, Dennis? Reverend Vaughn, is it okay for me to be here? What do you mean? One day, when I was feeding Jeremiah, Mrs. Crone said I should come to church, but I wasn't sure that was okay. I mean, I don't really fit in. Of course you fit in, Dennis. No, no, I don't. I don't fit in anywhere. I'm too short. Everyone at school acts like I'm a freshman, and girls treat me like their little brother. I can't get a good job because I'm not strong enough to bale hay or load trucks at the seed mill, and I don't fit in at church because I play rock and roll. You know why I play drums? No, I don't. Because when I sit behind the drums, I'm the right height. That's the only place I really fit. Dennis stopped speaking and stared at the floor. Dennis, do you know who Jesus hung around with? A bunch of people that didn't fit in. People that everyone else excluded because they were different. Believe you me, if we are truly following Christ's example, the church should be a gathering place for people that don't fit in. Dennis slowly smiled. Oh, Dennis, I have a little gift for you. I think you'll like it. I reached behind the pulpit and pulled out a thin package with a simple wrapping. What is it? I'll give you a hint. It'll look good on the front bumper of your car. Dennis smiled again. If it's okay, 
I'll open this a little later. That's a good idea, Dennis. He looked like a load had been lifted off his shoulders. Behind us we heard whispering and turned around to see three girls from the youth group shyly waiting by the back door. Dennis, I think you have a fan club. You better go. I hope I'll see you at church next Sunday. Probably will. Merry Christmas, Reverend. Merry Christmas, Dennis. So that's the sweet side of my husband, isn't it? That you can write a story like that. Well, thank you, honey. Yeah. And actually, it makes me think of the people I grew up with. And and actually, the story, when I pictured it, when I was writing it, I pictured the First Baptist Church in Jerseyville, Illinois, where I grew up. I did my growing up at that church. And I even used some actual names from folks back there. So if you're one of those people that he used their names... Consider it an honor. <laughs> and, don't, and don't ask for royalties. <laughs> well, this is our last episode of the year. Wow. I can't believe it. And I know it's been a kind of tough year for a lot of people. Yeah. But I'm really hoping that this story helped put you in the Christmas spirit. I know it's a different Christmas for a lot of us with not being able to see family and friends as much. But we can still feel the Christmas love and joy. Right. This year has been so weird. Actually, I did a commercial in January for Chevron, and the whole idea of the commercial was I was a dairy farmer, and Chevron is capturing methane from manure lagoons and making it into fuel to drive trucks. And I think it's a bit of a metaphor for this year. We're taking something a little stinky and trying to make our best out of it. <laughs> that is a good metaphor you, for the year. So here's to a better year for all of us in 2021. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. <laughs> 